John 13, verses 31 to 38. Here, John has taken us up into the upper room, and the Lord Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He has acted out in that parable what he is going to do on the cross. And he has told them, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you, but not all of you. And then remember, there was that focus on Judas, who was going to betray him. And Satan enters into Judas. And we said last week, Judas is the first of the disciples to understand that Jesus is going to die and that he is not going to benefit from an earthly kingdom. There's not going to be any money for Judas if Jesus dies. And so he decides he'll sell Jesus to the chief priest and the scribes for whatever he can get for selling the Savior out. And notice that John says here, before we look at this together, notice the last part of verse 30 and the first part of verse 31, it was night and he had gone out. There's a transition now. Judas has departed from the upper room and now Jesus is left alone with his disciples and what he's going to do he could not do with Judas in the room. That's a very important point as we look at this together this morning. Now John says when he had gone out, namely Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the greatest theological works in all of church history, and I would argue with somebody about this, is Jonathan Edwards' book, Charity and Its Fruits. It was a series of sermons that Edwards preached on the doctrine of love, Christian love, charity and its fruits. And in that book, the greatest chapter in that book and the most memorable chapter in that book is titled Heaven, a World of Love. Heaven, a World of Love. And what Edwards basically sets out in that is that after this world passes away and all the experiences and all of the joys and the sorrows and all true believers who have been bought with the blood of Christ are gathered before the throne and gathered into the very presence of God, there will be no more faith because faith will be turned to sight and there will be no more hope because hope will be accomplished and fulfilled But as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love endures forever. Heaven will be a world of love. And Edwards goes on to say the the experience that believers are going to have in heaven, and when you think about heaven, what it's going to be like, the chief thing we should think about is that there is going to be perfect, unbroken manifestation of love flowing through every single believer to every other believer. 
It's going to be God's love perfectly imparted to them, and heaven is going to be a world of perfect, undiluted love. When my mom died, my dad was so uh, ridden with guilt and grief, and he said to me one day, he said, you know, I didn't love your mom like I should have. And as we would all say about ourselves, we can say to that, I know, I didn't. Um, And yet my dad said, you know, in heaven, I'm going to love your mom perfectly. And every way I failed her, I will have eternity to love her perfectly. Not as my wife, but as a sister in Christ. Now, if that's what heaven's going to be, then how important it is when Jesus comes to go to the cross that he gives what theologians have called the new commandment to his disciples. Here, Judas has left the room. The betrayer has gone out. And now Jesus takes the opportunity to say something to his disciples, as I noted, that he could not say with Judas in the room. And as we look at this together and we look at this short passage, I want us to consider two things. First, I want us to consider the importance of the new commandment. And then I want us to consider the weakness of fleshly self-confidence, the importance of the new commandment and the weakness of fleshly self-confidence. Well, uh, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to the cross. He's telling them that. He is foretelling them that so that they will be forearmed. He says to them, I'm going away. Remember, he's already told them he's going away. And, And he says to them, a little while, I'm with you. You will seek me just as I said to the Jews. This is verse 33. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now he is telling them he is going to the cross. And then beyond that, through the resurrection and the ascension to the Father, he is going back to God, knowing, remember this chapter open, Jesus knowing he had come from God and that he was going back to God. He rose, he stooped, he washed the disciples' feet. And that's important because Jesus is foretelling his disciples about his death because he's going to forearm them because when they see him crucified— If he had not told them these things, they would have buckled under it in despondency and despair. They had given up everything to follow this man. They had given up lucrative fishing businesses. They had given up their families. They had left all to follow Jesus for three years. And if they see him nailed to the cross without him foretelling them this, they are going to buckle under it. Um, You know, one theologian, Ian Hamilton, makes this application I thought was so apropos. He says it's a daily battle to keep behind before our mind's eye the great promises, the great encouragements, the great forewarnings of Scripture so that we may be armed to meet the exigencies of the day, the unexpected circumstances of the day that knock us off balance. Think about that. Every day there are things that knock us off balance. And we need before our mind's eyes all of the promises all of the encouragements, all of the forewarnings that God has given us in Scripture. Um, that's what Jesus is doing for the disciples here by telling them that he's going away and they're not going to be able to come with him. They're not going to have him bodily with them. They're, they're, they're going to think they've been left to themselves, and yet they haven't. We know Jesus is going to go on in the upper room, and he's going to tell them, it's better for me to go away because if I don't go away, the Spirit's not going to come. If the Spirit comes— He'll dwell with you. I will be with you. I will not leave you orphans. It's better for me. By the way, I think if you asked any Christian, would it be better to have Jesus bodily here right now 
or is it better for him to be in heaven and all of his people to have the Holy Spirit? It's, they, they would say it'd be better to have him here bodily. And yet Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away. I'm not going to leave you orphans. And yet they're going to think they've been left. We see that, don't we, at the end of the gospel. They are sort of hiding out, and Peter's kind of given up. And he says, well, I'm going to go fishing. Why does Peter say I'm going to go fishing? Because he's like, well, I guess I'm going to go back to the only thing I know how to do. Jesus isn't here anymore. But, but the Savior is forewarning them in order to fore, forearm them. And notice that as he is setting this up and teeing up what we're going to look at as the new commandment, the passage opens with him saying to the disciples, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now remember I said the Gospel of John is divided into two sections, the book of signs and the book of glory. And remember, those seven miracles, those seven signs, were meant to be displays of his glory. When you see him, when you see him turning the water to wine, when you see him healing the man at the pool of Bethesda, when you see him raising Lazarus, these are displays of his glory. And yet, why is the second part of this book been called by theologians the book of glory if there's no miracle in it? apart from the resurrection of Jesus. And I think because what Jesus is saying here is that when he is lifted up on the cross, that is the greatest display of the glory of God ever in the existence of humanity. There is more glory in Jesus crucified than there was in the glory emanating from his face and his clothing at the transfiguration. There is more glory in the bloodied face of Jesus nailed to the tree than there is in any miracle that he wrought on earth. There is a greater manifestation of glory in Jesus being beaten and mocked and spit upon and crowned with thorns for your sin and my sin. There is more glory in the sun being nailed to the tree than in anything else he has ever done. It is the outshining of the glory of God at the cross. All of the perfections of God's attributes meet up at the cross. As he pours his wrath out on Jesus, he is extending his mercy and grace to sinners like us. The truth and righteousness of God are meeting, the mercy and justice of God are kissing at the cross, the psalmist says. And that's where the display of God's glory is seen, and Jesus knows that. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. This is the moment he had come to be glorified and to display God's glory. Notice God is glorified in him. Um, if you want to know what brings God the most glory, it's the death of his son on the cross. That's what brings God the most glory. It's not even your obedience or your efforts. It's not anything that we do. It's what Christ did. Think about that. that God glorifies himself by giving his son up to the cruel, cursed cross for us. And as Jesus is telling the disciples these things and preparing them and forearming them, he now does something unique. Um, he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then notice verse 34. I want us to really focus in. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, there there are questions here for us. Why does Jesus call this the new commandment? Because if we go back to Leviticus 19 in the Mosaic Law, and maybe you don't think about the law having a lot of love in it. Remember, love is the fulfillment of the law. 
Um, and yet there in Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, the Lord says through Moses, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So God commanded his people in Leviticus, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now Jesus says, you're to love one another, but he calls it a new commandment. Now there are three options for why he calls it a new commandment. The first option is that um, he is just exalting the law over the way the Jews had brought it down. There are certain theologians that say he's only saying it's new because he's bringing it back to its proper place. I don't think that's what he means. Um, It could mean that it's new in that it was never given before, but we've just seen that it was already given in Leviticus 19, and it's everywhere in the scriptures that we're called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That is, remember Jesus said the, the second great commandment, all the last six of the Ten Commandments are bound up in that word, love your neighbor as yourself. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to commit adultery. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to murder him or her in my heart. Um, Love fulfills the law, and so it's not new in that it had never been given. And then the third option, and I think this is what Jesus is teaching, is that it is new in that no one had ever embodied it like he did. Until the Son of God came, nobody had ever loved their neighbor the way he loved others. In fact, not one of us has ever fully and perfectly loved our neighbor as ourself. And yet Jesus comes, and this is why he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, Our culture has all kind of saccharine ideas about love. The Beatles sang, all you need is love. I just read about how John Lennon beat his first wife recurrently and abandoned his first son. So John Lennon's not a good model of love. All you need is love. Paul probably wrote that one. But but it's a saccharine idea of just live and let live, just be nice, just pass over everything. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling us, You are to love one another as I have loved you. I have loved you all the way to the point of laying down my life for you to purify you and redeem you and cleanse you and build you up and make you whole and reconcile you to God and give you all the good that you need by grace. So that what Jesus is not expecting is that we're ever going to love one another to the degree that he loved us because none of us will in this life. We will love each other perfectly in heaven as Edward said, but that the goal set before us is, while I am not here with you, what I want for you is that you would make that the goal of seeking to love one another in the way I have loved you. I have humbled myself. I have become a servant to you. Remember, this is annexed to everything that he just did in the upper room. If I've done this to you, you also ought to do it to one another. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to do that to one another. He is, he is essentially reiterating this for them. Now, here's what's interesting. He waits until Judas leaves the room to say this because Judas can't do this. This is for believers. This is for people that are trusting in Jesus, who know him, who belong to him. And, and now, let me say this. Jesus is not saying... I want you to love other believers, but forget all those unbelievers. And you need to hear me carefully, because there's 
some very hard-edged people, and sometimes they're in Reformed churches, and you get the sense that they hate unbelievers. Let's, let's not forget that Jesus taught us we're to love our enemies. We're to bless those that persecute us. We're to do good for them. When I hear the vitriolic ways that people talk about people who have hurt them on Twitter, I'm like, there's nothing Christian about this. Jesus said, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give them your other tunic. That's what he does on the cross. We were his enemies. There was nothing lovely about us. There was nothing that merited his love. There's no reason he should have died for us except that God in eternity chose a people in Christ and decided to set his unmerited love on them and then to display that love in his death and then to redeem them by that love and win them by that love. Now, there is a special sense, though, while we are to love our enemies as the Lord loved us when we were his enemies, there is a focused sense in which Jesus is saying this exclusively now to the Christian community. Um, you know, my dad used to say to me when I was a kid, you can know all your theology, you can be the best exegete of Greek and Hebrew, you can have every degree in theology imaginable, but if you never learn to love, then you've missed the point. That's what Jesus is saying, that what he came to do is not just redeem a people to, to live in isolation with him, but that we would really and truly live in that redeemed, new, loving community that God has built for himself. You know, it's interesting. Um, John Calvin says, um, In God, brotherly love seeks its cause from him. It has as its root, and to him it is directed. He says, it perceives any man to be a child of God, and when it does, it embraces him with the greater warmth and affection. Calvin says it is the highest degree of brotherly love that is here described by Christ, but we ought to believe, on the other hand, that as the goodness of God extends to the whole world, so we ought to love all, even those who hate us, and yet there's a special sense in which brotherly love is to be exhibited among the people of God. Um, I've been a pastor now for n almost 15 years, and one of the things that weighs the most on the heart of a pastor is when he sees Christians not walking in love. Um, there's, something, there's something so unbecoming and, and wrong about believers not walking in love the fighting, the grumbling, the dissension, the asserting of themselves, what they want, what they think, what they're going to do, and why aren't you doing this, and the, the grumbling, the self-orientation, because here's the thing, by nature, we are so self-focused. This can only happen by grace, and it can only, and I'm going to say this, this is a bold statement, this kind of loving society can only happen in the church among true believers who have been redeemed by the dying love of Jesus. The world can't have this anywhere. You will never find it outside the walls of the church. So that's why Jesus says, notice, a new commandment I've given you, you love one another as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
Notice that it's not evangelistic zeal that Jesus presses on them first and foremost. In fact, Jesus is here saying the greatest evangelistic tool in the belt of a Christian is the love that he is working in us for one another. Isn't that amazing? So that when the world looks on and they see believers who they hate because they hate Christ, but they see us loving one another, they know that we're really and truly disciples of Christ. Um, By the way, J.C. Ryle said this about this passage. Listen very closely. He said, let us note what a heavy condemnation these verses pronounce on sectarianism, bigotry, narrow-mindedness, party spirit, strife, bitterness, needless controversy between Christian and Christian. My, what a word we need in our day. There are people who are zealous for truth who are divisive. Now, we're not looking for unity apart from truth. This is only rooted in the truth of who Christ is. This is rooted in what he, what he came to do. He said, love one another as I loved you. It is rooted in sound doctrine and in the truth of Christianity. But it is altogether possible for people to be zealous for truth and not to have love as the goal of how they interact. I'm going to read again Ryle because it's important. Ryle said, let us note what a heavy condemnation this verse pronounces on sectarianism, bigotry, narrow-mindedness, party spirit, strife, bitterness, needless controversy between Christian and Christian. Um, I can say this this morning. Because we will never love in this life to the degree that Christ has loved us, we can never aim for this too much. So if Christ loved us perfectly in laying down his life for us, And we're never going to attain to that measure or degree of loving one another as he did. And yet he is the goal. We can never aim for it too much. Um, There should never be a moment in my life where I'm not coaching myself. Nick, you've got to love others as you love yourself. uh, Because we are so selfish by nature. Um... Now, this is a cross-shaped love. Remember I said Jesus said we're to love as he loved. It's a cross-shaped love. And uh, one writer, Christopher Ashe, put it this way. He said, when Christian people show cross-shaped love to one another and begin to build in their fellowships a new community, a new society of people who love one another purely and simply because they are family and belong to Jesus Christ, when that happens, then the outsider will see the glory of God. Isn't that cool? When we start to have cross-shaped love in our relationships, the outsider sees the glory of God because Jesus said, now the Son is glorified in what he did. And when then that starts to transform, his glory is shown in the church. Well, we have seen the importance, I hope, of the new commandment And, you know, I like to imagine if we were in that upper room and the Savior has just told us these precious truths, what he wants for us while he's gone, we we would hang on every word. But I'm afraid we would be just like Peter, right? Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you by this all men are going to know. And Peter's like, Lord, why can't we go where you're going? Peter totally missed it. Notice. Notice verse 36. It's as if Peter jumps over 
verse 34 and 35 and goes back to verse 33. In 33, Jesus said, yet a little while I'm with you, you'll seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. Then he gives the new commandment. Here's the really important thing, the new commandment. And then Peter's like, why can't we go with you? Why is Peter doing that? Because he doesn't care about the other disciples. He has not yet learned. Now, Peter's going to write two epistles, and he's going to talk almost more about brotherly love than any other letter in the New Testament. He is going to learn what it means to fervently love the brethren. And he's going to suffer for them and with them. Um, But here, Peter has not learned that. Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. And, and he's essentially saying to Peter, it's not your time to suffer, it's my time to suffer. You're going to suffer. You will follow me. It will, what happens to me will happen to you. Remember at the end of this letter, he tells Peter, when you were young, you walked where you, you wanted, but when you're old, another's going to stretch out your hands. And he signified by what death Peter would die, be crucified like his Lord at the end of his life. Jesus said, you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, notice, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. That might be the funniest thing Peter ever said. Because in just a few hours, he's going to deny Jesus three times. Now, what what are we looking at with Peter? We are seeing the weakness of fleshly self-confidence. Peter, as we saw in the upper room, is really, he he is full of self-trust. I, I can do this. I can, I can come with you. I can do whatever I want to do. Now, I'd like to press this on us this morning. Um, it is very easy for us to kind of shift gears, and I don't even think they make stick shifts anymore. I don't know, but they used to. So, um, But to shift gears in such a way to just think that we're going through uh, the Christian life in our own strength that we've got the resources in ourselves, that we can do this in ourselves. And, and that's why Peter is being set out here as an example of the weakness of self-confidence, fleshly self-confidence, so that we would learn, hey, do not trust yourself. Do not trust in your own efforts or your own strength. Don't think that you have the resources in yourself to live the Christian life or to do the things that the Lord has told us. So that when I hear Jesus saying, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, I ought to think, you know, I do not have that ability in myself, but Lord, you can give me that ability. Would you enable me? What Peter should have said is, Lord, enable me to love others as you have loved me. Give me the grace to love others as you have loved me. Um, I want to encourage you us this morning, that we would pray for that, that we would really receive from the Lord Jesus um, the new commandment, that we would understand the significance of it and, and how it needs to be central in our fellowships, and that we would say, Lord, give me the ability to love other believers as you have loved me. Teach me to view them as objects that need that sort of cross-shaped love, as Christopher Ash said. And, and then we ought to be praying and we ought to be thinking, how would the world view us if, if, if the world was looking onto Church Creek and our interactions and they were looking on, they were peering in from outside, 
what would they see? Would they see a community that is shaped and formed by that kind of love? Or would they see people who are acting like Peter in fleshly self-confidence? Now, we are going to fail. I, I fail every single day of my life. I do not love my wife and children as I should. You are not going to love one another with the exact same love that Christ has. And that's why we go back to the Lord Jesus and we confess that. And we say, Lord, I have not loved others. I have not loved you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. Have mercy on me, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me, make me a man or a woman who pursues that intentionally. And you know, I think as that happens in our fellowship, in our homes, that's got to start in the home, and then in our fellowships, and then as the world looks on and they see that sort of love and patience, you know, they, they really don't know what to do with it. I was having somebody tell me the other day about the uniqueness of marriages continuing in our society. Um, it, it's almost become a rare thing for a couple to be married for 20 years, 15 years, 10 years. Um, that's why we need this sort of cross-shaped love operative in our hearts, in our relationships, in the way we care and interact with one another because the world's going to look on and they're going to say, I don't see that anywhere. That's why Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have that sort of love for one another. And then I would just, I would just urge us to really consider um, the propensity that we have to slide into foolish self-confidence that um, we wouldn't view our duties as Christians, our service, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't view it as something, I got this, I can do this in myself, but that we would really cast ourselves in humility on the Lord and say, Lord, I don't have anything. You know, I love how the Apostle Paul speaks about himself because nobody did more in Christendom than Paul. I mean, poured himself out all over the globe to see the new covenant church established. And you know what Paul says about himself? He says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. This is the mature apostle. This is not a new believer. This is not an unbeliever. I know that in me, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And Paul says in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in the Lord Jesus. That's, that's what it means not to allow ourselves to fall into that sort of self-confidence that Peter falls into, but to say, you know, I have nothing good in me. I am nothing in myself. I'm not laying down my life for Jesus. I need him to lay down his life for me. I'm going to be just like Peter, afraid to profess him in and of myself. I mean, think about this. Peter is so weak that he's afraid of a little slave girl that he will deny that he knows Jesus to a slave girl. That's how weak we are by nature. And yet by grace, I want to challenge you that Christ has loved us and given himself for us, and now he calls us to pursue the new commandment that we would love one another as he has loved us, that we would love one another fervently with brotherly love, and that we would bear witness that we belong to him in so doing. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. 
Father in heaven, we do acknowledge our own sinful weaknesses. We acknowledge that, Lord, we are just like Simon Peter. We are um, so full of self-confidence and pride. Lord, we think we have things in ourselves when we have nothing. Lord, we cry out to you this morning, thanking you for the redemption that we have in Christ, thanking you, Lord, for your love for us. We acknowledge that it's not that we loved you, but that you loved us and gave your son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we do ask this morning that you would make us a people who love one another as you have loved us, that this church, that our homes would be marked by that cross-shaped love. We do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the grace to that end, that you would mediate for us this morning so that we would leave this place actively, seeking to love one another and to build each other up. We thank you and praise you that you have given us that opportunity, that you call us to live these sorts of lives in this world. We do pray that you would be glorified as the world looks on and sees that at work in us and among us. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.